Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm being joined today by Simon Erickson, all the way from Texas. Simon, everything's normal in Texas. You're back to wearing spurs, the big hats, and and power, and all that stuff is there. Thank goodness the spurs and the hats are back, Dan. We're back to normal again. Yeah, few people know this, but Simon actually rides a horse to and from the grocery store. So he, that, that is true. That, that is not true. Simon lives, of course, in Houston, Texas, which is a which is a city. Matt Cochran, you are here with me in Florida. You're having some technical issues today. So if Matt disappears, uh, it's not because he doesn't like you. It is because he is having some internet problems. And uh, gee, what a surprise! Matt's internet provider is Comcast. Uh, Matt, welcome to the program. <laughs> Why? Well, do you have any experience with Comcast, Dan, acting up? Like I, I haven't heard about that. But uh, yeah, like hopefully I'll be here the whole show. Here's the thing: if Comcast had a policy that their technician had to spit spit in your face and punch you before they could fix something, it wouldn't be any less customer friendly than their actual <laughs> policies. But I don't want to get any more any more private messages from Comcast, and I. I will say, Simon, if I disappear someday, it's Comcast or it's Walmart. Those are the two companies that most don't like to be criticized. And I can actually say I'm generally a big fan of Walmart. They just have some customer service issues and some delivery issues that have uh, have not gone well. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Now, later in the show, the last segment of the show, we're going to take your questions. We have some. We're going to take some more. We understand the markets have been Fun volatile and bad volatile. The past two days have been, you know, wow, rocket to the moon. The couple of days before that were the sky is falling. I will point out that if the markets go down 500 points on Monday and up 250 points Tuesday and Wednesday, the markets really didn't do anything. Like there, there is a lot of churn. There's a lot of sentiment-based moving. That being said, if you have questions, if you're worried, we're here for you. That's what we do at 7investing. We focus on the long-term I'll say it before I've said I'll say it again. I've said it before. Nothing changed about Apple yesterday. Like nothing changed about Disney or Costco. But with that, we're, we're going a totally different direction. We're going to talk about non-fungible tokens. That is a term, Simon Erickson. I had not heard until I don't know, roughly three weeks ago, and now it's absolutely everywhere. Uh, Simon, what is a non-fungible token? Yeah, sure, Dan. So let's start with some terminology. The first part of that, non-fungible, means it's uniquely identifiable and it's not just mutually transferable. Uh, so in English, that means we each of these is unique and they're not all exactly the same, right? So Dan, if you and I go out and we buy Starbucks stock, that is a fungible good. The share of Starbucks that you buy is pretty much exactly the same as the share that I would buy. A non-fungible good would be as if you and I go to the Eagles concert. We would say, hey, which ticket did you get? Are we in the front row or are we in the back row? Because those are uniquely different on the perspective that we have on our stage. And so a non-fungible just means you can track it uniquely. And it's not exactly the same as if it's transferred elsewhere. And then the second part, a token is a digital asset that can be tracked for transactions over time. So not only the upfront sale can be tracked and then it goes to the abyss of the secondary market, but you can actually track every single time that a token is, tra- is, is bought or sold on the same ledger of a blockchain. So the combination of those two is making for a very interesting dynamic with NFTs. So let me give an example here. These are one of a kind or unique, but they're not necessarily one of a kind. These can be like sort of like prints where there can be multiple copies. So maybe I go out and shoot a video of me doing a monster dunk. Few people would think that at five foot eight I can dunk and I can't, but let's pretend I could. So I shoot this video, fans of Seven Investing wanna see this. We could make it one of a hundred. And the contract would essentially be, we are only going to produce 100. We can never produce any more. So you end up with something that is a collectible or an asset. Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. And it could be anything that you want it to be. Uh, digital, like you said, you're doing a slam dunk. That's awesome. I would pay money to see that one, Dan. So, <laughs> so, 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 so would I. <laughs> uh, the, the idea is that these are, these are offered on a blockchain. And typically, they've been the Ethereum blockchain token standards that they've been created. You have to mint them. And when you do that, it allows you to not only uh, track them the entire way, but also kind of of cuts back on counterfeit, right? Uh, Because you can follow the ledger to where they were originally minted, it keeps people from creating a fake Dan video of dunking a basketball or a fake Rolex that you see on the side of of, um, Manhattan or something like that. I mean, you can follow these digitally all the way back to the source. And the ledger itself is what makes NFTs really unique because you can actually capture value for each one of those transactions that takes place. So Simon, 
let's say I want to buy and sell NFTs. Obviously, some of them have real perceived value. Some of them have just sort of sentimental or collectibles value. So be careful. What I'd say is this is a lot like the collectibles market where Barry Bonds' record home run ball might have been worth a million dollars at one point, and then Barry Bonds fell out of favor, and maybe it's only worth a hundred grand now. So there is some risk, but many NFTs are more like buying, you know, a, a baseball card of your favorite player. You're not buying it to resell it. You're buying it to like mount on the wall or, or, or have in your man cave. But Simon, if I wanted to buy or sell NFTs, uh, because I, I've got some ideas here, how would I go about doing that? So the, the similar comparison is to eBay. And I'll start the example by saying this. Say that, say that Matt is really into kitty cat beanie babies, right? And Matt goes out obviously, and he buys obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just assuming, Matt. I didn't know for sure, but it was just an assumption <laughs> on my part. Hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so Matt goes out and he buys a crypto, or he buys, I'm sorry, he buys a kitty cat beanie baby. He sells it on eBay for $10,000, right? eBay takes a small cut of that. Say it takes $500, 5% of, of whatever the transaction deal is. And then whoever buys it, say that you bought it, Dan, you go off and you sell it. And eBay really is out of the picture at this point. Matt takes his $500. He gives his $500 to eBay, takes his $10,000 for, for his Beanie Baby, and that's gone. But now Matt decides to create an NFT, which is a digitally created kitty cat Beanie Baby. It is now a digital asset, not a physical asset. And he sells it on an NFT gateway. And we do have those already. We're starting to see NFT gateways uh, starting to, to show up that are, that are allowing to do this. Now Matt sells it up front for $10,000. Um, the gateway itself, which is the eBay, uh, sim similar to an eBay, like we in the previous example, takes 5%. But then Matt captures 10% as the seller of the good. Right? So he captures his, his $1,000. He sells it to you for $10,000, Dan. And then five years later, you sell Matt's digital kitty beanie baby for $100,000. Now, eBay is still taking 5% and you're still getting a cut for making that sell. But Matt, as the original content creator of that digital kitty cat, gets another 10% of that $100,000 that then follows the ledger back to the original person who minted it. So you can see this really encourages people that are content creators to monetize over time because now we have a way of tracking every one of those transactions in the future. So let me point out a couple of important things. Uh, first, we're not mostly ignoring Matt and just using him as examples. Uh, <laughs> we essentially start the show with a top story. Today, we decided that that Simon's pick for, for what we're watching, our second segment, really was the top story of the day. So we're starting with Simon's story, and we're going to move to Matt's story, which is uh, Roblox, which is uh, uh, filed for a, a direct listing. So we're going to get a lot of Matt later in the show. Second, our very own Max Chatsko, I believe, or maybe it was... Uh, it was Max Lucas, it was one of our friends out there, did not know what Beanie Babies were. So let me explain this for the younger crowd. Beanie Babies are theoretically collectible, small stuffed animals that for a brief period in time, because they were in somewhat short supply, some of them had very, very high collectible value. The floor fell out of that market. So I, I have an aunt who had tons of these. Uh, and in, in fact, people on both sides of my family that had tons of these with the idea that they had value and then when they became no longer scarce and people became less interested, the value went away. So there was a limited quantity, but they didn't have that ability for the company that makes them, that's Thai, to every time one was sold. They did not get a piece of this. So this is going to be really good for artists and creators. And we're going to get to that in a second. So Simon, what creates the value for an NFT? It's, it's kind of supply and demand, right? It is. And I think that a lot of the flack that, that NFTs are getting right now is because these are more collectible items, right? We're seeing digital basketball cards. We're seeing digital comics, things like this that we've kind of traditionally thought of as, as collectibles. And eBay has played a role in facilitating those transactions. I think you hit the nail on the head, Dan, when you say that this is going to fundamentally change the music industry and the art industry, which as Napster and other technology has kind of devolved those industries where the people that were actually creating the songs we're getting less and less money every year because it was all interchangeable goods, right? Everything was exactly the same. Now they have a way to make exclusive content, provide that to people who are willing to pay for that exclusive content and get paid continually. So you can actually build a, a career out of this again as a musician, something that's kind of been harder and harder to do for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and, and I, I so I spent a bunch of time in the music industry, at least covering the music industry. I worked at Guitar World Magazine. I ran Long Island's Biggest Arts and Entertainment. In the old days, an artist would sell an album 
and get a cut of the money from that album. It often wasn't a great deal, but there were, there were ways to make money if you sold a lot of albums. What happened in the streaming music, even take it beyond Napster, the legal streaming music, is artists get a cut from Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, and it's a very, very small cut because there's multi, the management's taking a piece, the artist gets a piece, Spotify needs a piece, and you're only paying $9.99 a month. That has essentially made the physical album a souvenir. So someone like Taylor Swift, who has a devout following, might still sell a million physical albums when in the old days she might have sold 10 or 12 million. The average smaller band that's still very successful essentially sells no albums. So what this allows them to do is say, okay, there's no reason for you to buy my music. You know, you can get it on your streaming service, but I bet you would like a copy of the album with a message from me and a bonus track that's never going to be released to streaming music or access to the front of the line for tickets or, or who knows what it is. This is a really important way, in my opinion, and Simon, feel free to explain it more, for artists to monetize something that people want if they have a fan base. Yeah, absolutely. Kings of Leon just put out their first album on an NFT, non-fungible token digital album. And they've given away golden tickets. They've only minted a few golden tickets out there that you can pay for in exchange with anybody else who wants to buy them from you. But in addition to getting access to the album, which everybody else will have with a CD, you also now get two front row tickets to any concert at any venue that they have in the future. You have exclusive backstage access and they're going to release even more benefits for the people that hold those golden tickets over time, right? This is not a one-time sale anymore. This is a this is a gift that keeps on giving. What will the market bear for something like that that's exclusive? That's up for the market to decide. It's pretty exciting for Kings of Leon, though. Yeah, and, and this sort of builds on something you've seen a lot of artists do. Simon, we've talked about it. I like a lot of bands that would be considered obscure. And and my, my favorite band uh, had their heyday in the 80s and 90s, a band called Buffalo Tom out of Boston. Their <laughs> last album... They fundraised for it using Pledge Music, which I'm pretty sure no longer exists. It's a crowdfunding platform. So you could go, and I'll call this an early version of this NFT model without some of the recurring revenue. You could go and say, hey, I want my name in the liner notes. That's $25. Hey, I just want digital access to it and to support the band. That's $10. I want them to play in my backyard when the album comes out. That's $7,000. This is a way to do that in sort of a recurring revenue where they may only have 20,000 fans nationally, but those 20,000 fans are fairly passionate. So that's a way for much smaller artists, uh, not just music, to sort of monetize and make a living. I, I think it actually like kind of changes the art and collectible world. Yes, you're walking down the demand line, right? It's not everybody's just buying the album and paying the same amount for it. It's if people want more, you can give your most devout fans more access for a higher value. We would love your questions and comments. They can be about NFTs. We'll take uh, the one that's in there about NFTs a little later uh, towards the end of the segment. They can be about anything you'd like to talk about. And certainly if you have Roblox questions, we're going to be talking about that in the next section. But Simon, there are risks here. What, what are the risks in buying an NFT? Uh, I, the one that pops to my mind is it works like, like any cryptocurrency, right? Where if I lose my wallet, I no longer have the asset. There is a little bit of friction getting set up. I mean, you still, these are still, you know, you have to pay for them with, uh, with things that are cryptocurrencies on blockchains, typically Ethereum. Um, I'm not as concerned about the, the traditional things we've had about counterfeit or, you know, losing your money on investment. I mean, all of that's kind of tracked by the blockchain itself. I think it's more or less comes down to know what you're getting into. Uh, if something seems like you're just trying to get in and out and make a hundred times your money in a week, that's not the way to typically think about these. Um, the Gardner hype cycle kind of walks us through how new technologies like NFTs tend to go through a really high level of expectations where everybody's trying to make a ton of money really quickly on it. And Dan, we saw the same thing with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin shot up to $17,000 of Bitcoin when everyone and their grandma was buying it. And then it kind of went through that same trial of disillusionment, right? It lost a lot of money. Everyone was very frustrated. It's, oh, I bought Bitcoin and lost 50%. But now you start seeing people embracing blockchains and cryptocurrencies, especially enterprises. I think we're going to go through the same thing with NFTs. Think about this in long term, how it's disrupting industries as an investment rather than trying to get in and out on something that is a hot collectible that you want to make some money in a week on. Yeah, I would argue that collectibles are not an investment. Uh, you know, when I ran the toy store, we sold baseball cards and people were always angry at us on the values we would pay them based on what they thought they were worth. We also sold some very, very high end trains. Uh, and some of those would be $10,000, you know, engines. And if you put one on eBay a month, it would sell. If you put two, only one would sell. 
because that was how limited the market is. So when you're buying a collectible for resale value, there has to be someone on the other end of that transaction. That is important to remember. So that brings up, we're going to go to some questions now. We've got one from a friend of the family, Alan Sokoloff uh, from, from Cruising Altitude. He's actually going to be on 7investing now on Friday's show, the last segment, talking about millennial investors. But we had talked about how the NBA has been using NFTs with highlights. And he says, how does paying $200,000 for an NBA highlight make any sense? It's a good question. Are people really paying that much? I mean, I guess if you have exclusive access to it, there could be some some opportunity there. I mean, it comes back, I think, to the previous comment we just made, Dan, of, you know, what are you investing in NFTs for? Are, are, if it seems ridiculous to you, don't buy the NFT that's $100,000, right? If you are an artist that you're trying to figure out how you're going to make a living off of selling art or music, and this is a way to to accomplish that, then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so buyer beware, I think, is, is the guidance that I would give. I, I don't want us to go out there and say every NFT is the best deal possible for you out there. I just see the potential for innovation in a lot of industries that this is solving for. I view it a lot like, you know, if I wanted to own a, an animation cell from The Simpsons or a Star Wars lightsaber, or my thought isn't, you know, th hey, those things could become valuable in the future, but that wouldn't be your goal. There has to be some joy of ownership. If, if I am a fan of Kings of Leon and I could buy something exclusive that that's just me supporting the band and it's $30 or $50 or even $100, that might be worth it for me as a fan. Simon, we have a couple of questions here. One from Max Lucas, one from Chris Morley. You can, you're sitting closer to your computer than I am, so I will let you take them uh, and read them. Sam, if you want to bring up the Max Lucas question first. Uh, Simon, go ahead. I think the value of an NFT, oh, yeah, we go, there we go. I think, thank you, Max. I think the value of an NFT will come down to how it is taxed. Art is an investable asset for many high net worth people because the possible tax, ex tax exemptions on the capital appreciation. Yes, of course, there's tax consequences. That's a good point, Max. I, I can't disagree nor argue with any point of that comment. It's a good good point. It's it's also, I hate to say, going to be, as our cryptocurrencies, a haven for tax cheats. Because while the IRS has wagged its finger and said, you have to report all your transactions, their ability to track those. I'm not giving any any criminal advice, Matt, just, just, just so you know. I'm, I'm just saying that there is not as much transparency buying some of these things, especially as there, there are emerging markets for them as there necessarily is when you're buying like stocks through TD Ameritrade and they're not only correctly issuing you paperwork, they're sending that paperwork to the government as well. So this might be a gray area as the government doesn't catch up to technology all that quickly. It's far behind. The IRS is gonna be way behind this curve and they're gonna figure out how they're supposed to tax these things. Keep in mind, NFTs isn't just selling digital Beanie Babies and basketball cards either. I mean, this could incorporate a lot of things. We could be talking about digital real estate uh, in, in augmented reality worlds that are being created right now. And is that a real estate transaction? If you're if you're buying something just like you're buying land in the physical world today, I mean, things like that technically would be an NFT for a transaction. Um, there's going to be a lot of different tax codes that apply to this. And Simon, before we get to Chris Morley's question, I just sort of want to bring this back to the original concept is that basically anything can be an NFT. And the ridiculous example I gave is I hire Mr. T and I get him to do other celebrities' catchphrases. So you've got Mr. T doing, you know, Dynamite and Fonzie's A and all the other. And he signs a contract that says he'll never do this again. And I'm selling 10 copies of each one. That is a, a unique asset. There might be a market for it. But Simon, you could, after the show, create an NFT of us talking, right? Yeah, let's, let's put it up on video, Dan. I mean, you know, create <laughs> something. It's not mutually interchangeable. We're only going to create three of them. You know, maybe only our parents will buy them. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> but there, if, if we put it up on the on the marketplace, you know, Nifty Gateway has a way you can create NFTs right now and, and sell them at what the market will bear. Uh, this is creativity opening Pandora's box of what people want to create out there. Simon, Simon, can I ask a question? So I, I get why creators are incentivized to to uh, put to release NFTs, um, but the reason why people pay the eBay fees is because that's where the customers are, right? Is, is there a chance we're going to see a lot of supply for NFTs, but maybe not the demand? Because let, let's face it, again, people pay the the five percent eBay fees or Shopify fees or wherever they're selling. They pay those fees because that's that's you know those marketplace economics that they bring the customer to the seller too. So is there a chance like we're not going to see the demand side of this materialize? 
I mean, absolutely. The platforms are going to have to get larger and larger because of those network effects, Matt. That's why you just saw Jack Dorsey and Square buy a majority stake in title, right? With Jay-Z, because he thinks he's got a large enough user base that if he starts pushing this, the demand will, will naturally come in place if you get it in front of enough people. Uh, if you are a plat, if you are a marketplace that's doing NFTs and only 10 people are visiting a year, that's not going to work. That's not going to make it. There's no demand for what everybody's selling. They're naturally you're going to want to sell on the marketplaces that have the greatest the, the strongest network effects uh, absolutely to answer your question absolutely and there's absolutely a glut of regular collectibles out there like so for when, when we were selling baseball cards we literally had tens of thousands of cards we couldn't even process we had a stamp section and there were probably stamps in our collection that were worth tens of thousands of dollars but the manpower it takes to go through those stamps is massive and it doesn't necessarily so the cool thing about these being electronic is your ability to search them, your ability to track them uh, is going to be really strong. But Simon, there's a question there from Chris Morley uh, that sort of speaks to this about whether this could be a declining asset for technology reasons. That's a, yeah, okay, great question, Chris. I'd be very concerned about NFT purchases becoming orphaned as the tech evolves over time, similar to buying video games that are impossible to play five years later. Yeah, I remember those Nintendo cartridges that don't work <laughs> on anything else in, anymore, the consoles that are there. I mean, Chris, Chris's are blockchains that are that are public blockchains available everywhere on the world that has the internet connection, right? So these are not physical consoles like a PlayStation, like a Nintendo, like a cartridge that would only apply for, for those kind of things. Uh, I think the bigger question is what what is the fundamental blockchain that is that is tracking the transactions? You don't want to maybe buy and sell NFTs if they're built on the token standards of a very, very small token, a cryptocurrency that nobody's using, you want to use the ones that are on Ethereum that have smart contracts and are going to be around 10 years from now. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure it's exactly the same as, uh, as the console gaming industry. And the other thing that I'd like to point out, since we're talking about this, another great point that I think you've got me going on a bit of a tangent for here, apologies, Dan, but the gaming industry itself has transitioned as well, right? Take-Two Interactive makes uh, the NBA 2K franchise. Right. So this is where you can play games that used to be played on consoles now on the Internet or at least consoles that are connected to the Internet. And Matt, do you know what percentage of Take-Two's revenue is from in-game transactions now? I, I don't off the top of my head. I'm sure it's a growing amount of their total revenues. Now. It's oh. about 40 percent now is, yeah. is from those transactions of, you know, customizing the player, giving them abilities that make you better than your opponents out there. I mean, that's that's very different than just selling the cartridge up front. And so things like that, this exclusivity, this personalization, customization, NFT is just kind of is uh, the next evolution of what the gaming industry picked up on 10 years ago. We're going to absolutely get back to talking about this on many other shows. There's a ton of great questions in the queue. There's also some great questions in our doc that I feel we already kind of hit on. But everyone who asked us questions, we appreciate it. I promise in another couple of weeks, we will take a look again at the NFT market because I think it's really exciting. There's going to be winners here. There's going to be losers here. If you have good content, this is going to be another revenue source. Is that going to be as big as, say, like when, when DVDs were you know, absolutely game-changing to the movie business for a number of years and that sort of fell away? Or is it going to be a novelty? I don't think we know all those answers yet. And Simon, as we close this segment out, before we move to talking to Roblox, I'll, I'll give you the last word. You can take a question. You can, you can share anything you want to share. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is just one of those other fundamental innovations, right? Like we talked about the hype cycle just a second ago. It's kind of at first when you see things like Bitcoin, the initial reaction, if you're an investor is, oh, no, completely staying away. No, that's going to be a fad. Oh, it's too hype. No, I can't believe that Bitcoin's this dollar amount per, per, per Bitcoin. I, I think it's the same thing with NFTs. I, I don't want us to spend too much time putting under the microscope of individual transactions or, you know, how did this basketball player or Dan Klein dunking a basketball, be worth this much money. I, I think that the bigger impact is going to be really big. Um, and I think that as an investor, you know, we try to zoom out and say, okay, well, what is that going to mean for Square? What is that going to mean for the platforms in the marketplace? What is that going to mean for the content creators, the people with IP like Disney? You know, you've still got to have rights uh, and the IP for, for anything that's branded. And companies that create that content own those rights to it. I, I think that at the end of the day, this is going to be a, a bigger deal than just a fad that, that blows away in the wind. Um, I, I'm really intrigued by where NFT goes, NFTs go over the next couple of years. As a creator, I think that's the exciting part of it. Uh, this sort of speaks to what Andrew Connolly was asking. Uh, but basically, so I, I wrote a couple of books. 
And every now and then I'd get an email from someone, hey, I picked up a copy of your book used. And I would go, great, I don't get any money on that because it's used. You didn't buy it from the publisher. That's a kind of silly example because you don't make any money publishing books anyway. Uh, but that being said, if I put out a book as an NFT, which in theory would be possible, that you, I would get every time that was sold, I would get some royalty, some piece of that transaction. So as a creator, that makes you this a very viable platform to say like, yep, I'm going to put something out in the world. It's going to be at a fair price. But every time it changes hands, I'm going to get paid my 2%, my 5%, whatever that is. As, as someone who you know has been creative in the past, that is really exciting for me. I love seeing that some of our, our members, some of our friends and fans are actually answering each other's questions in the, the, the questions and comments. That is absolutely awesome. But Simon, we will get back to this, I promise. Not on the show, later on. But Matt, Roblox. This is a company I'd never heard of. My, my kid is maybe a little outside the age for Roblox. Never heard of it until you brought it up a few months ago. But they're going a direct listing route to go public. Can you uh, set the table a little bit about what that means and what Roblox is? Yeah, absolutely. So like if uh, the last time we talked about it, I think they were getting ready to uh, like have an IPO and that was late last year. And uh, after seeing some valuations of some other IPOs late last year, they decided to switch to a direct listing um, and they're going public today. So what is Roblox? I, I think it's um, it's best to find like, is it a game? Is it an app? Is it a platform? And it's almost like best to think about it as uh, it's kind of YouTube centric, meaning like there's a lot of like, there's 8 million developers that make games on this platform. And there's 36.2 million daily active users that log on to Roblox every day. And it's best think of this user-generated, immersive 3D digital world where friends meet to explore and play. And uh, this is from, so how do they define it? This is from their S1. They say, we call this emerging category human co-experience, which we consider to be the new form of social interaction we envisioned back in 2004. Our platform is powered by user-generated content and draws inspiration from gaming, entertainment, social media, and even toys. So there's a few uh, like very unique characteristics or key characteristics for Roblox that to like understand it like you should understand these things. So first of all, every user has their own unique identity with their like own form of avatars that allows them to express themselves like as whoever or whatever they want to be and so you can always accessorize with this and, and users can create accessories and and different costumes for avatars that people can buy and those people who create as accessories they get 30 percent the developers of games um they get 70 percent of the take for the for the amount of um money they spend on those games that users spend on those games it's friends, it's extremely social. It's all about, um, like three of my four kids play this very often. There, There's a, three of those 36.2 million daily active <laughs> users are, are my children. Um, and it, it's all about what game is my friend playing right now? Like, uh, like you know, like one of the most popular games that my kids play, I, I don't know how popular it is, but that they always play, it's like this like building and uh, it's this giant hide-and-go-seek game. And the person that's it is wearing a giant banana costume and is chasing around all the other avatars. And they like, you know, they just they just love playing that. Um, it's immersive. So Roblox says they want their experiences to quote, become increasingly engaging and indistinguishable from the real world. Anywhere, like it's a, you can play it on any kind of platform, PC, mobile, console, uh, even VR platforms like the Oculus. And it's very low friction. So it's really simple to set up an account on Roblox. It's free to sign up um, for, for, for users to play and enjoy experiences on the platform. And um, it's very easy to like converse with your friends on the platform. And it's also very easy for developers to build experiences. And they call this the Roblox Studio. And it's very like it's either very low code uh, to build like a, a game or no code um, with Roblox Studio. Studio and then publish them to the Roblox cloud, and then it's access accessible to all users across the platform and the variety of content. And this is key. So Roblox is like this fast expanding universe of developer and creator built content. As of September 30th, 2020, there were over 18 million experiences on Roblox, and in the 12 months ended September 30th, 2020, over 12 million of those were experienced by the community. 
there are also millions of creator-built virtual items with which users can personalize their avatars. And it's an economy. So Roblox has this vibrant economy. Now, let, let, yeah. let, me, let me jump in here. So I, I just sure. want to set it back to the real world. So let's say Simon and I decide we're going to join Roblox. We want to build the uh, seven investing to the moon stock market game where sure. it's, already on you know, it, it's already in the works right now. <laughs> How do we make money on that? Once you're, are we charging for that experience inside Roblox or is it all buying add-on stuff? How, we'll talk about their financials in a second. But how do we make money with our very, very good idea for a game here? So that's what I was going to get to. Like, it's this economy, right? So Roblox has this vibrant economy built on a currency that they called Robux. And it's this virtual currency that you can only use within the Roblox platform. And you can uh, choose to spend, uh, like customers, like users will buy Robux. Like I have spent, I have paid out allowances to my kids in Robux before. And if, if, <laughs> if, if, uh, if if they if it was up to them, I would spend out a lot more allowances and Robux. Um, and basically, they can go spend it on experiences or items for the avatar, however they want. And so, developers and creators then earn Robux by building experiences and uh, items that users want to purchase. So we could set up like there's some virtual rewards. We could set up a seven investing store, and people could come in and you know for like 17 Robux a month, they could get like seven stock picks or something like that. And um, and then, uh, you know, it, it uh, Roblox enables developers and creators to convert the Robux back into real world currency. So, Matt, this isn't because I always pictured this as being sort of like one game, kind of like Minecraft that has all sorts of spinoffs. But it's really not. It's really a platform where I could use the Robux engine to build a, a racing game or a battling game or a stock market game. Like right. so, so imagine if Minecraft is it, 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 it's. The best in my head, it is kind of like Minecraft, but it's also kind of like YouTube. So it's all about like Dan, if you, me, and Simon were gonna go into Roblox, it's like maybe I make a game, and then all three of us and all seven of our lead advisors go and we play that game together. Like it's so it's very social and it's all it, it's very like uh user-generated content. So there's almost infinite content like YouTube. Like where you say like YouTube is just like there's an almost infinite content on YouTube because to try to quantify it is all, it's basically impossible, right? I mean, like how many hours of video are uploaded onto YouTube every minute? I mean, it's like it, it's basically infinite because it's user generated. So there's there, you never run out of content or get bored of a single game on Roblox because there's always another game to play. So, so Matt, that sort of answers Chris Morley's question about it sort of being Farmville. It's not a sort of one-time experience. Like if you get bored with what you're doing, you can pick lots of other things in the Roblox uh, universe. But Matt, their numbers are absolutely incredible. I I'm shocked by their margins. They, they almost seem like made up, but why don't you go through how well they've done? Well, yeah. So, I mean, like they, they in 2020 revenue, they made $924 million um, and $524 million of that was operating cash. $329 million was paid uh, to developers. So Roblox has almost tripled payouts to developers in the last year. So while revenue didn't quite double, as the company aims to get top creators to spend more of their time uh, building for the app, they're just paying more to developers. More than 1,250 developers made at least $10,000 last year through virtual sales in their Roblox games. So it's really all about like incentivizing these top creators to make more compelling content. Is it all games, Matt? Or could we go in and create... Uh... You know, there's obviously a lot of young people here, so there'd be a lot of opportunity to say educate on personal finance or the stock market. Could we gamify that and sort of, uh, you know, build out the next generation of uh, of seven investors? So a lot of it is more. If you're familiar with Sims, it's almost more like that kind of content. So is Sims a game? Yes, but is it also more like an online hangout? Yes. Like there's some games where it's like I, I think this is literally it. You work at a fast food place. And then you hang out in the parking lot afterwards with your coworkers from the fast food place. That's quote unquote a game. So, I mean, some of it is more gamey and some of it is just, it's more social. It's like a social experience. You know, like, so in the last year when the pandemic hit, like if, if the pandemic had hit like 10 or 20 years ago, I think the kids of that time would have been much more affected. But in the last year, like, um, 
my, my kids, they, they obviously felt the lack of social, social interactions in the real world. But because of like things like Roblox or other types of games, like this is a, a lot of how like kids socialize now, you know, playing Fortnite with your friends, um, you know, Roblox is a part of that. And it, it's, it's very, it's very social gaming. So even, almost all the games are built around playing with your friends. This is why my kid talks like he's text messaging. Uh, lack of human interaction. Right. Matt, <laughs> as an investor here, the, the numbers are great. The profit margins are high. But what are the risks? All right. So um, the cost of revenue is mostly app store fees, so which goes to like iOS or Android. And it, that is increasing as more of Roblox's revenue comes from mobile. So as more users access Roblox via mobile devices, app store fees are only going to go up. Meaning this cost of revenue is only going to scale as Roblox gets larger. And the second one is, is that trust and safety is extremely important for this platform. Over 50% of Roblox's user base is under the age of 13, and everything is social and user generated. So the company has to invest heavily in moderation. And this gets to like one of Roblox's biggest challenges, right? Because so many of their users are younger. If they want to expand their audience to like over 18, how are they going to expand that user base, bring in older demographics, but still, um, but still ha have the, the necessary trust and safety that they have now? So I think that's one of the biggest challenges for it to go forward, to expand that user base and to get 18 plus users uh, onto the platform or even just even out of keeping the users they have now as they age above that like 18 years of age mark. Um, but still be able to moderate the content. And that's expensive, um, to, one, to moderate, and two, it's going to be tricky to navigate that, to like keep users on the platform as they get over the age of 18. And that's probably the biggest long-term challenge Roblox faces. So eventually, Simon and I can meet up at a, a, a Roblox whiskey tasting uh, virtually. Simon, you wanted to ask Matt a question before we move into the home stretch here. I, I just think that the, the margins on this business are in, are insane. It's amazing that, you know, it, what, was it $924 million of revenue you said last year? 56% of that is falling to operating cash flow. And that's even after they're paying out the developers a third of that. I mean, it, most enterprise companies are, are putting it right back into R&D or at least sales and marketing. I, I mean, Matt, do you have any idea how they should or, or could be spending their money? That's an insane profit margin for a company this early on. Well, right now, I think one of their biggest expenses, like I said, was that 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 moderation. Like, and, and I think that's going to be like a, a difficulty for going forward. Uh, they have to invest a lot in a safety and moderation. And like they, one of their like key points of success is like to parents like me of three or four children. Like they have a lot of trust with me. And there's still things that have fallen through the cracks where it's not where there's content has been found on there. And of course, it's rooted out, but that's not age appropriate. And I think just like. Uh, as they get more developers and as it's like, uh, you know, uh, more and more games are developed, it's almost like, you know, the, think of YouTube and how much Alphabet has to spend uh, constantly on looking for videos with inappropriate content. Now think about that if you have a platform for users that are almost all exclusively under the age of 18 and there's just millions of games being developed at a time, the, con the, the moderation cost to go through that content is is going to increase with time. So that that you know that that's really like and, one of their biggest costs. And age appropriate is something my wife and I don't agree on. So like there are often times where I'll think something's fine for my son. She will you know video games for a long time there were like games I'd buy and I'd be like yeah don't play that one around your mom. Like you know Resident Evil being a good example of one that I found is a cartoonish game. Nobody's gonna. You know, that to me is very different than, say, like a Grand Theft Auto, which is real people committing real-ish crimes. But that is a very squishy standard. So it's not all going to be easy sailing. And I'll give a little piece of advice I always talk about. Now, we know a fair amount of Ro about Roblox compared to the average direct listing or SPAC or, or even IPO. But if it's a really great company, you'll know a lot more after a couple of quarters of them reporting earnings and having to meet SEC filing standards. You'll see what their CEO is like when he gives a presentation or their CFO, depending who leads the presentation. I am generally a big fan of not investing in new stock listings right away. It's not a hard and fast rule, but if you bought Amazon two quarters in or Apple or whatever it was, that does not change anything except rounding errors. Matt, last word on Roblox before we move into the home stretch here. Yeah. So, I mean, like, 
look, like Simon said, it, its margins are great. It has some long-term challenges uh, with paying the the app stores as it goes more mobile and with like content moderation versus like, you know, weighing that versus like growing their user base to over, you know, to users over 18, um, you know, so they have some challenges. It's going uh, public at about a $30 billion valuation, which puts that price of sales over 30. So, you know, it's expensive, um, but you know, it has captured a key market. And if it finds a way to grow with that market and keep users as they get over eight, as they age over 18, um, you know, the, the platform itself is, could be, could be huge. And, and, you know, already has some network, key network effects. So there's a lot to like. There's a lot of key concerns and risks too. Uh, full disclosure, like my 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 children, they, they get $2,000 uh, contributions in their, their Coverdell ESA accounts for college one day. And so uh, they, they pick two stocks every year that they can invest in. And one of their stocks was was Roblox this year. So um, when, when it goes public, so they'll be getting uh, the beginning share of the Roblox in their ESA accounts. But um, so so we will... My family will, will will own the stock as it goes public. You're watching Seven Investing now. I'm Dan Klein, and this is the free public facing part of what we do at Seven Investing. This is for everybody. The idea is on this show to take the news of the day and give you the long term investing perspective. But that's not the main thing we do, Simon. If you're a member of Seven Investing, and we'll talk about how easy it is to join. What are some of the things people get for their seventeen dollars a month or hundred and seventy dollars a year? Yeah, th thanks very much, Dan. Uh, you know, we, we always do these shows because we, we try to be three things, right? We want to be innovative, we want to be credible, we want to be helpful. And we say those up front because, you know, we, we think that the back and forth of a live stream is so much more helpful uh, than just publishing recommendation reports, uh, which we also do. And then we also follow up on those recommendation reports with subscriber calls, which is another interactive. We do it as a Zoom call where people can ask us specific questions about the recommendations we have. And all this this bubbles up to our mission which is to empower people to invest in their future. How do, you, how do you empower people? We want it to have an educational aspect to it. We want it to have a back and forth component to it. I'm really proud of everything we're doing. I think we're looking at some really innovative things. Our track record is uh, always transparently reported for the credibility piece of that. Seveninvesting.com slash recommendations if you want to see at any given time how we're doing. And I think we're looking at some really neat things. I mean, we talked about some really fun things on this show, but Look at our recommendations this past month, Dan. I mean, we were looking at some stuff that is completely off the radar for a lot of investors out there. Recommendations we think are the best ideas in the stock market that are not making headlines. And so combined together, seven investing membership, seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. It's just $17 a month, $170 a year. Uh, we've got a bigger, bigger picture mission that we're, we're dead set on achieving out there. And that's going to bring us into the home stretch. The next section of the show, we're going to take, we have some of your questions. If there's some other questions on the market you want to get in, we will try to get them. We don't have a ton of time. But the reason we do that, the, the reason we make seven picks a month that, that our members pay for is because we want you to pick and choose and invest for the long term. I think one of the most important things we've done, and we've all done it on Twitter, is say, okay, stocks are very volatile right now. Look at the stocks you own. Look at the stocks you bought. What has changed about them? Some of the, the stocks we picked, say like a biotech pick from, from Max or Manisha, might go up 20%, down 30%, and you're like, wait a minute, like nothing changed about their drug pipeline. Maybe it's a retail pick from me and someone's saying, well, their numbers were good, but their next quarter might not be as good because of uh, you know people doing different things. That might be true, but it doesn't change our core underlying analysis of the market. But we're going to get to some of your questions. Martin Triggs asked, what the heck is going on? This is during the, uh, he asked this question when yesterday the market was whipsawing up and down. Why the speed and fury? Is this the new normal? How much is this a Robin Hood, Reddit, Wall Street bets effect of panic newbies? Thanks. Looking forward to listening. Uh, I don't actually think it's any of that. I think it, I don't think the whole market is moved by those markets as much as they are by big institutional investors. Simon, your thoughts here. Yeah, I'll go back to something you said earlier in this program, Dan, which is that Apple hasn't really changed in the last week, even with the market going up and down. The uh, return for investors is is pretty much a combination of one of three things, if not more than one of these things, which is fundamental growth. You know, the business reports higher earnings over time. The market's valuation multiple that it gives as a multiple of those earnings or whatever fundamental increases over time or it pays a dividend. Right. And so the fundamentals have been just fine, at least from the earnings reports that I've looked at recently. 
dividends haven't hugely been changed up or down by most companies out there. So this is a revaluation of the multiple that institutional investors uh, are getting a little scared and shaken out of a volatile market. Is that an opportunity for long-term investors? Absolutely it is, because we do not have the same restrictions as hedge funds or institutional investors do. And so I, I, I stand to the, to the, um, the, the idea that market sell-offs are, are your best friend and opportunity if you're a long-term investor. Alex Woke says, what should someone who got a little overzealous buying tech recs in the last six months and are essentially back to square one do, but doesn't have much dry powder left either? Matt, I'll let you take this one. I'll just say, if you bought any of our tech recs in the last six months, none of our thinking has changed. We weren't making those recommendations based on what they were going to do in six months. We're basing, basing it on what they're going to do over years. And there is added volatility right now because there's a lot of back and forth on, is the economy gonna open? What's that's gonna look like? Our behavior's gonna change? A lot of that is just pure noise. Matt Cochran, you can bring some noise as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it all depends why you bought those uh, companies, right? So like at, at Seven Investing, like we recommend companies that we wanna hold for the long term, And like, uh, you will see volatility and you will like, they're starting out, it's the most difficult time to be an investor. Remember that, because like you, you don't have much of a base, you you uh you might not have a lot of gains and when a mar if a market dips when you're first starting out it can be painful because your 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 account balances are, are lower than the the amount you've put in and, and that that is by far the most difficult time to be an investor if the thesis for the why you bought that company has not changed then then don't sell you, you want to hold first you want to buy great companies and hopefully at seven investing we recommend uh great companies for the long term um but and if you buy great companies and, and not, the reason why you bought those companies has not changed, you want to hold through the downturns. If you have dry powder, that's great. Add more. Hopefully you can start adding a little every month to your portfolio and take advantage of like the dips, like of the companies that are down the most. Um, if not, add money when you can. But you want to keep adding money when you can. And you want to hold through through good times and bad, through thick and thin, right? Um, and, uh, you know, as long as the thesis has not changed, you know, as far as we're concerned uh, at Seven Investing, we want to invest for the long term and, you know, volatility or, or short term movements is not a reason to sell. Joyce Hine, who is a member, calls our service a great value. Joyce, it is a great value. So I was actually talking about joining Seven Investing a little bit after I did on a, on a family Zoom to both of my aunts, my aunt Susan and my aunt Judy, and they're both investors. Uh, and when I told them the price, they told me that's crazy. Like, why wouldn't you charge 10 times more for what you're giving? And the reason for that, and Simon, if, if I'm getting this wrong, you can, you can tell me because you created the company. The reason for that is we want everyone to invest. We wanted a price point where someone who's new to this, it's, you know, what a magazine would have cost back in the old days. You know, it, it, it's not something that's going to scare you. It's also not something that if you're only investing a couple thousand dollars or less a year, the price of your subscription is going to put you into the red. We also do something awesome is that if you're a member, you get a referral code. You can use that referral code, put it out there to your friends and family for every person who signs up. Not only do they get a deal on the subscription, you get a month for free. There's people that are going to have me working well longer than I necessarily intended to work because they already have, you know, eight, nine, whatever it is, years worth of subscription. Simon, did I get that correct? Nailed it, Dan. hundred percent spot on. You're hired. <laughs> I want to go quickly through a few more questions. Uh, Chris Morley asks, uh, he's watching the show, uh, curious about everyone's thoughts on risk profile and having a substantial part of one's net worth in a single security. I personally don't do that, but I, if, so let's say I bought something and it 10 times and it became 30% of my portfolio. I wouldn't put new money into that, but I probably wouldn't sell it. Now, if it got over 50%, I might then examine how much risk I had. It would also depend what the stock was. If, if that stock was a biotech waiting on approval for something, or if I had owned GameStop because I believed it as a retailer and it's all of a sudden 10,000% higher, that to me, it depends. Uh, Simon, then Matt, let's, be, let's try to keep it to about 30 seconds if we can here. Yeah, perfect. It's, it's a personal question and everybody's, everybody's rule is different. So uh, take everything we say with a grain of salt. My, my personal opinion on this is, I think that you compound your gains and you shouldn't sell your winners. I have a position that's 25% of my taxable portfolio right now. Uh, it is a seven investing recommendation from last year. I, I won't reveal which one it is, but I'm comfortable with, with 
an outsized position. Absolutely. Matt Cochran, your thoughts it's on GameStop. this? GameStop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was going to say it's AMC, but it is neither of those. Matt. Uh, no, it, it, it really depends on your own uh, your risk tolerance. Uh, there's so many variables when it comes to that. You know, I, I would hate to tell, give any kind of personal advice. Uh, like what I would say, like what I do, I have about 30 positions. Um, you know, I very look. I'm not going to say I never sell. Uh, I, I sell my. I might sell about one position a year. Actually, um, it's probably what it averages out to be, and that's you know usually to add a new position or so. My number of positions does tend to grow over time, and then I try to pair it back. But um, it, it really depends on the risk tolerance, which so many things go into that. The the income of your job, the your your age. I mean, there's there's so many factors that go into that. There's no way you can answer it for every person. It also, in in my opinion, depends a lot on what the stock is. If you know, if, if, if it's Walmart or Target or or something that's just you know the bottom doesn't look that dangerous then you're not it's not as much risk as if it's like a high flying tech company that in theory could not be the next big thing or or even an apple when you look at how much of apple's revenue you know over 50% traditionally comes from the iphone there might be more risk with apple than there is with microsoft if you really get in and look at it it is all personal it depends on your age chris we are the same age so I tend to uh, want to be spread out with nothing more than 15% of my portfolio. But if something climbs because it's succeeding, I'll keep an eye on it, but I generally won't sell it. Um, two more questions before we, we end the show, and then we'll share one comment at the end because it's a nice comment. So Sam, you know which one I'm talking about there. Um, Rayal, regular viewer, friend of the family here, says, uh, what happens when you buy the dip, but the dip keeps on dipping? All I would say is if it's good company, stay the course. Simon. I agree. That was a quick answer, which is necessary because we are running out of time. <laughs> that uh, last question, it's, it's a totally other direction, but we, we often talk about not investing money uh, that you need for the next three years. And our, our mutual good friend, uh, Anand, our, our former colleague, shared something like this on Twitter. And a ton of retail investors were like, that's crazy. Like, how much money are you missing out on? I stand by the idea that I don't care how safe a stock is. You do not want money invested over that you're going to need within three years for college tuition, down payment for a house. Now, if the reason you need it is you want to take a silly vacation or buy a car you don't really need, that might be different. But this, this goes to Huck Whaler's question. Where's the best place to save your down payment for a house you plan to buy in three years? In my opinion, it is definitely not the stock market. Simon, then Matt. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. It's going to, you know, maybe the market sells off the week that you were needing that money. And then all of a sudden you don't have it available for something you were counting on in your lifestyle. I mean, stocks are great ways to build long-term wealth. We don't say never sell. I mean, it's totally fine to take profits off of the table, but don't, don't get yourself in a pinch when you need the money the most. Yeah, Matt, I'll, I'll give you the last word on this question here. No, I, I have nothing to add. I mean, yeah, really, three years, uh, you, you don't want to be keeping that money in the stock market for any time frame less than three years. Ideally, five years or more, no doubt. That three to five years is that gray area for me, like depending on how conservative or progressive you are, or maybe not like it's a totally binary choice where maybe you can keep some of it in the market, but most of it um, out of the market. But once you get to three years and under, yeah, keep get it out of the market. And there are lots of credible sites out there. Uh, look for the big names. Don't look for some of the pop-ups that will give you the best rates on a bank account, the best rates in a CD. Those are going to be very, very minimal returns. But if you are keeping $50,000, $100,000 on the sideline you know, for two to three years, you probably it's important to get 1.2% rather than 0.05%. Uh, and those things can be fine. Think, uh, you know, um, bank rate or go banking rates. There, there's lots of sites that, that can give you that information. Just realize that those sites make money if you go through them and get one of those accounts. So uh, while they do have great editorial price processes at the places I mentioned, be careful that not everyone does. With that, uh, one last kind comment from, uh, from Deepak Patel, if you want to share that, Sam. Love hearing from you folks. Appreciate the transparency to your live chats and recommendation. Yeah, we're transparent. If you're a member, you know everything we do. Um, I know I, I wrote something that's actually going to be public facing uh, that I wrote today uh, for our advisor updates. And 
I talked about how I owned some of the stocks in there that I'm kind of saying have a lot of risk involved. And I, I explain a little bit why I own them and what my 10-year horizon is, is for them. But that's not something I'd make a pick because it's not my highest conviction pick. It's something I've taken a very small flyer on. So there are a lot of things that you get as a 7investing member or even as just a fan who's reading our public-facing stuff where you'll be like, oh, like Matt really likes that company. Doesn't mean it's a pick. Doesn't mean it has his highest conviction. But with that, Sam Bailey, let's hit our finisher. I wonder if we've changed some minds after this show, but which investment are you most excited about? 31.7% uh, said cryptocurrency, only 6.1% said non-fungible tokens, 18.6% real estate, 43.6% said none of the above. Simon, as someone who's about to, is trying to sell his condo so he can buy an investment piece of real estate, I would argue that for me, it's real estate with the exception of I consider part of the value that I'll be using the property. I, I don't really believe in real estate as an investment where your goal is to make returns on it. I think that's very active, it's very difficult. Uh, in this case, if I break even on the cost and I get to use it 10 weeks a year, that to me was an investment payoff. But I am excited about NFTs. Do you think we changed some minds on this show? I'm excited about NFTs, NFTs too. I, I would vote A personally, Dan, because I think that that is kind of the foundation for NFTs is the cryptocurrency blockchains themselves. Real estate's great too. Virtual real estate built off of blockchains as well. I, I'd have to go with A in this poll personally. So Matt Cochran, I know you're a big philatelist, huge stamp collection in your house. So aside <laughs> from stamps, no, Matt does not collect stamps as far as I know. Asi I aside aside from, from not collecting stamps, which of these most interests you? Well, I mean, the vast majority of all my investment money is in the stock market. However, the, the one that most interests me is, is real estate. I, I think that's, uh, you know, look, I, if you want to put like small percentage of your portfolio towards riskier assets like cryptocurrency or NFTs, that's fine. Go, go for it. I, I think that's absolutely like uh, something that could really pay off big. However, like, uh, like maybe I'm just more a little more conservative in nature. I like to take my risk in the stock market where I think I might have an advantage. I, I don't know any advantage that I have right now in cryptocurrency or NFTs. So I like to stick to the stock market and the real estate seems like a more conservative, conservative investment. Two quick comments here. We have one advantage in cryptocurrencies. That is our partnership with Crypto EQ. If you want more about that, there is, uh, where is that on our website, Simon? I was about to say, I don't know where that is on our website. Crypto EQ, uh, we have them on the live stream every now and then, Dan. We have them on the, on the site itself. You go to CryptoEQ.io if you want to check out their site. Um, we don't pretend to know everything about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So we brought in a partner that, that does a lot more analytical time looking into those. And I will say uh, Thursday, I'm doing a podcast with uh, a data scientist from Clever Real Estate to talk a little bit about millennials in the real estate market. And we don't know when we're going to release that. It'll probably be part of it will air on this show. And what I'll say is your house is a bank account. It's not an investment. So in theory, if you buy a house, you get the, the advantage of living there. And as you pay down your mortgage, assuming you have a mortgage, you're creating some value. What you don't know is, will the market go up? A lot of people bought in New York, and right now the values are down because of the pandemic. I don't think that's long-term. My values here in Florida, though I have, had not been able to sell my condo, uh, uh, should be extremely high because people are moving here. But I look at it as sort of a secondary benefit. I didn't buy my house because I thought it was going to go up in value. I bought my house because I wanted to live there, and it seemed like a good value. And it was a good value that hopefully now is worth more. If you're looking for a condo in West Palm Beach, uh, you know, hit me up on Twitter. That's it for this issue edition. Not issue. We're not a magazine. We're a television show. This edition of 7 Investing Now. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, it's really easy to do. That is info at 7investing.com. That's for questions about our service, questions about how things work. Um, you know, not really like, hey, what about this stock? If you want to talk to us about stocks or things that would be great ideas potentially for this live stream or for our podcast, hit us up on Twitter at 7investing. That is the number 7investing. Uh, we are very, very active on Twitter. We throw polls out there all the time. We were talking to you yesterday. I asked people for uh, some of the biggest mistakes they've made in the market. I find it's really important to, even for those of us who do this for a living, uh, I admitted that I was a big fan of JCPenney, not recent JCPenney. I mean, post Ron Johnson, Marvin Ellison, JCPenney. And I've talked about this before. I really thought, 
they had the keys to a turnaround. I was ridiculously wrong about that, obviously. So is my track record great most of the time? Yes, it is. But even the best, you know, this is baseball. You know, nobody, nobody hits every ball for a home run. So it's fun having so many of you share that. I'm sure we'll use that content on a future show. But for Matt Cochran, for Simon Erickson, for Sam Bailey behind the glass, we'll see you Friday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.